God seeks sinners. He is like a father who has pity on a son. And so King David could write, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on us. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In a message entitled, Receiving Sinners, from Romans chapter 15, Pastor Brogy has been looking at the way Jesus Christ received sinners, and in so doing, how we ought to do likewise. We see today how Jesus receives sinners unconditionally. Remember how he found you. Remember remember what you were like before you met the Lord Jesus Christ. You understood that you were a sinner, that your sin deserved judgment, that your sin separated you from God, yet nonetheless God received you. And if God did that for us, we are to do it for one another. Because as Jesus said, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor is a slave above his master. And so Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. We would do well to learn from the Lord Jesus this morning. Paul said it this way to the church at Ephesus. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. How? Just as, just like God in Christ forgave you. You see a tension that runs all the way through the scripture with so many different truths. On the one hand, as in one parable Jesus teaches, a mark of conversion is that you forgive other people. It's a genuine mark that you have met the Lord. On the other hand, God recognizes the possibility of a true Christian withhold forgiveness. And so here he says, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just like God in Christ forgave you. Some of you this morning are having difficulty in your marriage. And you need to release your partner. You need to forgive them. And you really won't be able to do it until you step back and remember how it is that God in Christ Jesus forgave you. Some of you might have an issue with someone in the church. And you need to release that person and accept that person just as God in Christ Jesus received you. Now, he says, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as. Same truth as here in our Roman text. That's a mark of godliness. And I don't care how spiritual you may think you are. If you've got some issue against your wife, against some relative, against some church member, then you are not walking in the fullness of the Spirit. You are walking in carnality. A mark of godliness is that you receive other people unconditionally. And a mark of carnality is that you don't. When Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, he says, And I, brethren, speaking to believers, could not uh, speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to babes in Christ. I gave you milk to drink. Past tense. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able. He's just reminding them of what they were like when he found them. He started the church at Corinth and that he preached the gospel to those people and they were all baby Christians and he treated them in the proper way. The problem was is four years later when he writes this letter and the next verse he says, indeed, even now you are not yet able. For he says, you are still fleshly. There's jealousy. There's strife among you. Are you not carnal? Are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men, like an unbeliever would walk? And of course, the implication is, yes, you are. 
So someone who is quarrelsome, who's divisive in the church, I don't care how long they've been a Christian or how spiritual they think they may be, God says they are doing just the opposite of what he wants them to do and to be. Now hold that thought and let's go to Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 2. If you're new to the Bible, the second book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, is the gospel according to Mark, written under the supervision of the apostle Peter. And go, if you will, turn, if you will, to Mark chapter 2. And I want you to see an illustration of how Jesus receives sinners. We read in chapter 2 of verse 14, and he passed by and he saw Levi. He's also, by the way, called Matthew. Levi is his Jewish name. Matthew is his new name. Just like it used to be Saul of Tarsus, now it's the Apostle Paul. Just like he used to be called Simon, now he's called Peter. He passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and he followed him. So he's at this tax booth in his hometown of Capernaum where they would levy duty on goods. And of course, since the tax rates were not always that clear, it was easy for an unscrupulous man to take extra money. And that's why these guys were not popular. A nickname for them is sinners. And so in virtually every place in the New Testament where you see the term tax gatherer or tax collector or publican, depending on your translation, you see the word sinner linked to it because that's the way they were viewed. Remember on that occasion, Zacchaeus, the wee little man we teach kids about, the tax collector, and he gets saved and you see a mark of his conversion by his changed life and he says, behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. If he defrauded anyone, yes, because he had. It's in Greek what we call a first-class conditional statement. You'll be interested in this. Some linguistics are important in the New Testament. And this is one of them. You can ask a question in Greek different ways. And one way to ask it is to ask it in such a fashion that it's assumed to be true. Like when the devil said, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. He was not questioning whether or not he was the son of God. Interpretively, you could write, since you are the son of God. The father had just declared it from heaven. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And now the devil comes to test him, to tempt him. That's a temptation that no one who is just human could ever pull off. He recognized he was the Son of God. And the structure is that. You say, well, why doesn't, why doesn't he just say sense for emphasis? Why do we ask rhetorical questions when we can just make a plain statement for emphasis? And so one way when God wanted to underscore a truth, he would state it in a certain way. If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. He was a crook, like most tax collectors were. And God saved him from that dishonest lifestyle. Now understand, even if a tax collector was honest, he was still unliked by the Jewish people because of his association to deal with the Romans. And they despised the Romans. They saw them as people who shouldn't be on their property and ruling over them. Now, there is nothing wrong with tax collecting. John the Baptist dealt with tax collectors. He didn't say, quit your job. He said, look, if you're going to collect taxes, just take what you're supposed to and no more. Now, there's no evidence that Matthew was a crook or a thief. 
But to the Jews, he was despised because he was a tax collector. And so we read here in, in this verse, he said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. Now remember the context. He's raised in this town of Capernaum. It's a little town in the first century. It has about 1,500 people in it. And when you think of Christ's headquarters, think of Capernaum, the town of Jesus. There's really four major places you should associate in your mind with the Lord Jesus. One is Bethlehem, of course, the place he was born. Nazareth, the place where he was raised. And of course, he, he did the first miracle in Nazareth. And if you remember also, he goes into the synagogue and he preaches in Nazareth and they want to throw him off a cliff. And after that happens, he leaves Nazareth and he moves to this little town of Capernaum. And this becomes headquarters for him. Now, there's a larger town near it. It's called Magdala, where Mary was from. Josephus tells us there was 40,000 people from that town. But for whatever reason, this town a little bit bigger than Yemesee, Jesus decides to make headquarters. And a lot of important things on this seaside town took place. Peter's mother-in-law was healed. Here's a picture of the town. Uh, I'm actually standing at Peter's mother-in-law's house when this picture is taken. And that is how far the distance is between the synagogue and Peter's mother-in-law's house. And that's a class A site. We know, yes, that took place there. The synagogue looks a little different than it did in the first century. It was expanded a little bit. Those are not the original walls, but that's the floor that Jesus walked on. We talk about walking in the footsteps of Jesus. That was the place. It was in this town that his mother-in-law was healed. Here's a, a looking from the synagogue to the house. Now, that big structure over the top of it is a church. The first time I went to Israel, that wasn't there. But our Roman Catholic friends decided to build a, a church over the top of Peter's mother-in-law's house. She was healed in that place. The Roman centurion's servant, remember him? He was healed in this city. The paralytic, remember when they took the tiles off the roof and they lowered that guy down because the place was so packed? He was healed in this town. The hemorrhaging woman who had bled for years, she's healed in this town. The synagogue leader, Jairus, whose daughter dies, is raised from the dead in this town. Two blind men plead for sight. They're healed in this town. A demon-possessed man is delivered in this town. Jesus, the day before, preached a sermon called the Bread of Life Discourse. And then he goes across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. And he gives, uh, excuse me, the day before he does the miracle where he feeds 5,000. The next day he comes to Capernaum, this town, and he preaches the bread of life discourse that John gives in his gospel. So it might have looked probably like this in the first century. It's a little seacoast town. And it was a great place to collect taxes because people were always coming through the port. And that's what Matthew did for a living. So when Jesus says, get up and follow me, there's some context to it. He would have heard the Lord Jesus preach. He would have heard about the miracles, probably witnessed several of them himself. And so he's under deep conviction. And Luke records, and he left everything behind and got up and followed him. Luke, when he describes what happens when he's converted, he says this in Luke 5, 29, and Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. 
And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with him. He's so excited about his salvation. He invites all his friends to his home that the Lord Jesus might tell them of forgiveness. Now, these Jewish people did not like that. Notice here in Mark's account, verse 15. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. Now, as you read the Gospels, it's clear that the Lord Jesus deliberately sought the outcasts of the society. And of course, whenever God goes to work, the critics come out of the woodwork, and in this case, the scribes and the Pharisees. Notice verse 16. When the scribes and the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? These guys would habitually criticize the Lord Jesus because they neither understood him or his ministry. He did not fit their little religious mold. And so the Lord Jesus is going to deal with them forthrightly. They asked this question, why is he eating with these scumbags, paraphrase? Verse 17, in hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Matthew's friends were like patients, and the Lord Jesus was the physician. And as a physician, he comes to us. He makes the perfect diagnosis. He gives a complete and total cure. And in the process, he pays the bill himself. And so he does not consider these people to be rejects. He considers them to be people whom he loves and deeply cares about. And the Pharisees just cannot understand it. And by the way, there are three principal reasons why people will not come to Christ as the great physician. Number one, some don't know of him. And so we have a responsibility to go and tell. Our Valentine's banquet is not about us on Friday night. It's about caring for the souls of lost people and reaching out to them and loving them with Christ's love. Some need to know of the goodness of God. Others have heard of the goodness of God, but they refuse to embrace it. Jesus said men would love their evil deeds so they would not come to the light for their sin to be exposed. But here's a third group of people, the scribes and the Pharisees. They know and hear what Jesus is saying. But because they are so self-righteous, they don't see their need. Look, you go to a physician when you're sick and you can't heal yourself. You'll go to a savior when you see that you cannot save yourself, that there is absolutely nothing you've done or might do that can help get you into heaven. You either come in a bankrupt state where God saves you all by himself without any help from you, or he does not save you at all. And the Pharisees refuse to see that. But Jesus loves to save sinners, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. But unfortunately, the teachers in his day were superficial in their teaching, like the false prophets and the priests in Jeremiah's day, whom he rebuked. They heal the brokenness of the daughter of my people superficially, wrote Jeremiah, saying, peace, peace. But there is no peace. And so Jeremiah, with real fire in his bones, as the text says, was able to tell people the truth. He said, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. 
Look, that is so contrary to the feel-good Joel Osteen preachers of our day with a superficial healing ointment that does nothing but leads people to a false assurance that they are right with God. He does not get down as the Pharisees in Christ's day did not get down to the deep root issues of sin. And we are called to call out false prophets. So don't write me any letters. I'm just doing what the Scripture says. Understand that Jesus, though, receives sinners unconditionally. He didn't care what they had done, how people assessed them. He loved them unconditionally. And so you can see these unconditional invitations on the last day, the great day of the feast. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Paul understood the ministry of Messiah so well so that he can write to Timothy, this is a faithful saying and worthy of your full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he says, of whom I am the chief. So back in Romans 15, 7, don't turn there. In Romans 15, 7, he makes a very pointed statement. Therefore, accept one another. How? Unconditionally. Just as Christ accepted, past tense. If you miss the past tense, you miss the whole point of the text. He's taking you back. He's taking me back to what I was like when God saved me. Unrighteous, dirty, filthy in the eyes of a holy God. Religious, yes. Filthy, yes. And God saves sinners like that. But when he saves them, he doesn't do it with a sense of reluctancy. He does it with a passion. So the second thing I want you to see is not only does he save sinners unconditionally, Christ Jesus saves sinners passionately. He receives sinners passionately. Now turn over to the next book, to the gospel according to Luke, and go, if you will, to Luke chapter 15. Luke 15. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist of 150 years ago, led a Sunday school class in Chicago, which he became famous for. And he took all these boys off the street that no one else wanted in their churches. And one 13-year-old boy who had walked nearly three miles every week to come to his Sunday school class was asked by his next-door neighbor, why do you walk so far to church? There's one right here. And his reply, I suppose, could have been used by the tax collectors and the sinners. He said, because they love a fellow down there. They love a fellow down there. And that's what this is all about. Look at 15 and verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. The Pharisees repelled sinners. The Lord attracted them. Sinners came to hear his message, not because he catered to them or compromised the message, but because he cared for them. And he understood their needs, and he, and he tried to help them where the Pharisees would just be critical of them, and they'd keep their distance. Yes, they had a knowledge of the Old Testament, but they thought somehow that that knowledge made them righteous. And they thought that the things they did could make them holy. And so to really show the problem, he tells a parable, or you could say three parables. Some would say one parable with three parts. Some would say three parables. Doesn't matter. The message is clear. First, he tells the parable of the lost sheep, beginning in verse 4. If you look down at verse 8, he tells the parable of the lost piece of silver. And then beginning in verse 11, he tells the parable of the lost sinners, the lost uh, son. And he does it to show God's passionate love for sinners. 
Now look at the familiar refrain here in verse 2. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. They were scandalized by the behavior of the Lord Jesus. It was bad enough that the Lord Jesus receives these people, but he's even eating with them and defiling himself. And so these people did not yet understand that the Son of Man had come to seek and to save that which was lost. So, verse 3, he told them this parable saying, and watch closely in all three stories, something or someone is lost, there's an earnestness to find it, and when it's found with passion, there's a great rejoicing that takes place. Verse 4, what man among you If he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. Sheep, as you know, have the tendency to go astray. Peter wrote, describing us spiritually, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. And so the scribes and the Pharisees here had no problem seeing the tax collectors and these sinners as lost sheep. But they don't apply the image to themselves, but Christ is going to. The prophet Isaiah said, and they should have known it, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Had they just read their own scriptures, all means all. And that included the scribes and their Pharisees. All of us like sheep have gone astray, even religious people. And so in these three parables, Christ speaks of three different kinds of lost people and how God pursues them. Even in the parable of the prodigal son, he's not talking about some wayward Christian in that parable. He's talking about someone who had never met the living God. And that's clear from the context. Remember, he is dealing with people who have an objection to the fact that he eats with sinners. And then when you come to the prodigal son, he, of course, is going to receive a new position and he's going to be given a new sense of authority. Yet he's already a Jew. He's one of God's chosen people. But as we've seen in our study of Romans, though God chose the nation, that's Romans 9, individuals within the nation still need to make personal decisions for Christ. And though this man was a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, did not automatically mean that he was righteous with God. Again in verse 4, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one? Underscore that in your thinking. Jesus is not saying the 99 are unimportant to the shepherd. Instead, he's emphasizing the one. Remember, The one represents here the sinners, the tax collectors. And God loves sinners. It doesn't mean that the 99 are unimportant to them. They're important to him as well. The 99, as we're going to see, represent the Pharisees. The Pharisees who are unwilling to repent. But the Lord goes after the one, the, the strange sheep. And when he has found it, we read... He lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I found my sheep which was lost. Look, when a sinner gets saved, there's great joy. And these three parables underscore that. Now the parable, of course, says nothing of how the sheep themselves felt when they were saved. But other passages do. We just read of Matthew who threw a great feast on the day he was converted and invited all his friends. He was overjoyed. You read Acts 3, you read Acts 8 of people who are saved and there's great joy that happens. 
on a Sunday morning. Very often, most Sundays, either in Bluffton or the first service, the second service, occasionally all three, someone comes to Christ and the people here rejoice together. There's just a sense of joy that God brings to the heart of a regenerated person when someone finds the Lord. There's also joy in the one who does the finding, which is the focus here. And if you've ever been privileged to lead even one person to Christ, you're just overwhelmed with the joy of it, that God would use you to introduce someone into the kingdom. And so there's joy in the one who is found. There's joy in the one who does the finding. And he's going to underscore here in a moment, there's even joy in heaven. Look at verse 7. I tell you, in the same way, there is, will be more joy in heaven over one sinner, over one tax gatherer who repents than over 99 righteous persons, i.e. Pharisees, who need no repentance. So Jesus was saying, look, God passionately searches for lost sinners. And when he finds them, he rejoices. Look at verse 8. He tells the second parable or the second part to the same parable. Or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When a Jewish girl got married in the first century, she began to wear a headband of 10 silver coins. And some to this day still do it there in Israel. And you would have 10 drachmas across the top. That's the word here for coin, drachma. And a drachma was an equivalent to one day's wage. And if you lost one of those coins, not only would you lose something of great value, you would lose something of great sentimental value. It would be like a, a woman losing the diamond out of the setting. And so, of course, uh, Israel, those homes in the first century were dark. You would have to light a lamp. The floors were dirt. You would have to sweep until you found that coin. But imagine her joy in finding it. Verse 9, when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin which I had lost. The point is clear to Jesus' listeners. The sinners with whom he is associating are extremely valuable to God Almighty. In the same way, verse 10, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, it's easy to read these two parables today and to take it for granted. But understand, in the first century, when they heard these, they would have been shocked because the teaching they were getting day in and day out in the temple precincts and in the synagogues by the scribes and by the Pharisees had a legalistic view of God, not a God who sought sinners. And yet had they only read their own scripture right at the fall, it is not Adam who is seeking God, but God is seeking Adam when he asks, where are you, Adam? God seeks sinners. He is like a father who has pity on a son. And so King David could write, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on us. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. Jesus' parables show us how loving our God is and how earnestly he seeks after us. For a copy of today's message from Romans 15 entitled, Receiving Sinners, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. 
You can also order a CD or DVD by calling us at 877-787-7478 and requesting program ROM69. And if you would, please consider helping support Search the Scriptures with a one-time gift or by becoming a monthly foundation partner. Your financial help allows us to continue broadcasting on radio stations throughout America and over the Internet throughout the world. Tomorrow we conclude our message, Receiving Sinners. Join us then when we search the Scriptures.